Well, hey, yeah. See you later, Chris. <laughs> Takes his mic and runs. Well, hey, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. And as we continue in our series that we're calling Dear Church, Christ's Heart for His Beloved Bride, we're going to look at the second letter that he wrote to the churches in Revelation. And this is a letter to the church in Smyrna. Let's read it together, verses 8 through 11. Jesus said unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Father, thank you for another opportunity for us to study your word together. And we know that the same spirit who inspired these words also resides in us who believe, and uh, he is our helper. He helps us understand your word, he illuminates us, and so, spirit, would you illuminate our minds to understand these words and show us how they practically apply to each of our lives, we pray tonight, that we would be more conformed, ultimately, to the image of Christ. We ask this in his name, amen. Well, ever since it began, the church of Jesus Christ has experienced suffering, persecution, and death. Its founder, Jesus Christ, suffered a violent death on a Roman cross. And before he died, he challenged all those who followed him that they had to be willing to suffer a similar fate. He said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his, what? Cross and follow me. He warned them that the world would hate them like they hated him and that they would deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and will be hated by all nations because of my name. And so based on these predictions and many others throughout the New Testament, it's not surprising that all of Jesus' closest disciples, except for one, the Apostle John, died as martyrs. Early church tradition records that Peter and Bartholomew were crucified upside down. Andrew died on an X-shaped cross. Matthew died by the sword. Thomas was pierced with a lance. And Simon the Zealot was sawn in half. Both Matthias and Paul were beheaded while Philip died by hanging. Many of the early Christians who followed after these apostles also suffered and 
died for Christ's sake. And the writer of Hebrews lists some of the ways that they were persecuted. Hebrews 11 verse 35 says this, others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Some of these show up in the Christian classic, The Fox's Book of Martyrs. By the way, anybody read, ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? It's no light reading, by the way. But I would encourage it any, nonetheless because it records the dramatic stories of Christians throughout church history who remain faithful unto death. Men like Justin and Origen and John Huss and William Tyndale and others. And in our modern times, ministries like the Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors track the present-day persecution of Christians in countries around the world where um, Christianity is restricted or countries where they're hostile to Christianity. I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, I'm talking about Iran, I'm talking about Afghanistan, Egypt, China, Indonesia, North Korea, Sudan, Somalia, Colombia, Cuba, and as close as Mexico. There's even persecution of Christians there. According to the World Watch List, which is a a list that um, uh, Open Doors Ministry comes up with every year to highlight the the 50 countries where it costs the most to be a Christian, and this is what they've said, every day 13 Christians are killed around the world. 12 churches are attacked. Twelve Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five Christians are abducted. That's not theoretical. That's actual. That actually happened today. Somewhere around the world, our brothers and sisters were killed. Churches like ours, meeting like we're doing right now, were attacked. Christians were arrested. They were thrown in prison, and some were kidnapped. And the tragedy is that most Christians living in Western countries like America are totally unaware of modern persecution of the church around the world. And so consequently, the American church, for the most part, lies comfortably in an apathetic stupor characterized by lethargy and hypocrisy. Steve Lawson, a name you may be familiar with, a great expositor, um, an equally good author. He has written a book on the seven churches of Revelation called uh, Final Call. And this is what he said, and I quote, he said, the greatest blessing that could ever happen to the cause of Christ might be for the American church to be persecuted. Someone has said, the problem with Christians these days is that no one wants to kill them anymore. Such persecution would melt us down to the bare essentials of what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. I think the point is simply this. If you are lying there beaten and bloody in solitary confinement, what else would you have to do but pray? No video games there 
in solitary confinement. If everyone around you was attacking you, it would be natural for you to, be want, to, be around, want, to want to be around other Christians because they're the only ones not trying to kill you. If there was an ever-present possibility of being arrested and killed for going to a Bible study, guess what? Only those who are truly committed to Christ would be here tonight because you are putting your life on the line to come. If preachers were at risk of being imprisoned and tortured for teaching God's word, there would be no false teachers running around seeking to get rich off their followers. I say all that because I think here in America, it's easy to forget that there's a cost to being a Christian. But as the return of Christ approaches, persecution is going to increase. And we need to be ready to suffer and possibly die even for the cause of Christ. And this letter that we're looking at tonight, Christ's letter to the church in Smyrna, I think will help us get ready to deal with persecution when it comes. The believers in Smyrna were facing persecution. And through the pen of the Apostle John, Jesus sends them a a, a much-needed encouragement. And don't miss this, in light of our theme here, Dear Church, Christ's heart for his beloved bride, I think he, in this letter, expressed his deep love and compassion for his bride who was suffering for remaining faithful to him. And so his heart went out to them. And so as we go through this letter tonight, we're going to follow the same outline as we did last week. I said last week that each of these letters um, follows the same basic format. There's a correspondent who is Christ, um, the city, the church, the commendation, um, except for Sardis and Laodicea. They don't have anything to commend, nothing commendable about those churches. And then the condemnation, except for Smyrna and also uh, Philadelphia, who we'll see in a few weeks, and then the correction or command, and then the consolation. So let's look first of all at the correspondent. And as was customary in ancient letters, Jesus identified himself at the beginning of the letter rather than signing his name at the end like we do. And if you remember from last week, I said that Jesus introduces himself in each one of these letters with some line taken from John's vision of him in chapter 1. And the description that he chose uh, for each of the churches is, is directly related to the particular situation in the church being addressed. And so here, the description he used was designed to encourage and comfort the hearts of this persecuted church. Notice what he says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last. This was an Old Testament title for God that emphasized his eternality, that he was what we just sang. He's the ancient of days. He's always been and always will be. He's always existed. He, was all, he will always exist. And, and so he was taking on uh, deity is what Jesus was saying there. He was referring to himself as the one who transcends time and space. He's above and beyond all things, and in him, we can rise above anything that we face in life. In other words, Christ is bigger than life itself. 
And so in the midst of their temporal suffering and persecution, he wanted, Jesus wanted them to maintain an eternal perspective, the first and the last. In Romans 8.18, Paul shared this passion about an eternal perspective and suffering. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. The point is simply this, the pain, the persecution that we suffer here on this earth is insignificant compared to the eternal glory that we will enjoy in heaven someday. So he wants to give them an eternal perspective. And so he says, I'm the first and the last. Who was dead and has come to life? That's a profound mystery. How can the eternal one, he just claimed eternality, he claimed to be God, right? How can the eternal one die? And yet we know the mystery of the gospel is that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and died and rose again and lives forever in heaven. And I think this aspect of, of Christ's life and, and ministry and character was, was particularly relevant to those who face the threat of death daily. In other words, if they were to die at the hands of their persecutors, they could have the confidence that the one who had conquered death and had the power to raise himself from the dead, had the power to raise them back to life and reward them with eternal life in heaven with him. In fact, Jesus said that, John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So Christ's triumph over the grave gave these believers, these persecuted believers, the assurance that they would be triumphant over death as well. And so that's the correspondent. Now let's learn a little bit about the city. The city. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was the oldest and largest city in Asia Minor, and it was also considered the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. In fact, it competed with Ephesus and Pergamum, the other two main cities in the Roman province of Asia, as who was most important. It was a thriving seaport located on the Gulf of the Asian Sea, about 50 miles north of Ephesus. Uh, in fact, we have a slide there that maybe would be helpful to look at. There it is. I know it's kind of hard to see, perhaps. But these are the seven churches of Revelation. And so, remember I said last week, this was, uh, they were all located on the, the Roman uh, or the royal mail route. And they started with Ephesus, and they would go up to Smyrna, then to Pergamos, then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and end with Laodicea. So that just gives you a picture of, of, the, uh, of the route that we're following and that Jesus sent these letters, addressed these letters, uh, according to that uh, little clockwise semicircle perspective. But you see uh, Smyrna just north of Ephesus. You can put it back, I guess, to that uh, title slide now. But uh, this was a, a bustling bay city, uh, and uh, as a lot of bays are, uh, a very picturesque setting. It was at the base of a 500-foot hill called Mount Pagos. 
the most famous street called the Street of Gold, car, uh, curved around the slopes of Mount Pagos like a necklace. At the summit of the mountain there sat the gleaming Acropolis, which was the, the kind of the temple area, uh, numerous other buildings, and it gave the appearance of this jeweled crown. Uh, it was actually known, the top of that, that peak was known as the Crown of Smyrna. Uh, the city boasted lavish temples, a magnificent library, a, a famous stadium, the largest public theater in Asia. It was also the hometown of Homer, whose, you may know the works, right, Iliad and, and the Odyssey, they were the textbooks of the ancient world. Um, so this was a significant city, and in fact, Smyrna's currency was inscribed with the words, the first in beauty and size. So they were proud of their city. Now, the word Smyrna in Greek comes from what word? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Smyrna, um, which, by the way, was one of the city's chief exports. And if you're not familiar with myrrh, myrrh was a, a fragrant spice that was used uh, as a perfume. Uh, it was also used for anointing, uh, anointing oil. It was also used for embalming dead bodies. And I think the association with death here in this, in this letter perfectly pictures the suffering church at Smyrna. Myrrh was produced by, by crushing a plant that released this sweet aroma. And so I think in a similar way, as the believers in Smyrna were being crushed by persecution, it produced a fragrant aroma that was pleasing to Christ. In other words, it made his bride smell good. He liked it. How about the church? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna. So here in the middle of this wealthy but wicked city was a little faithful flock of believers, many of whom were persecuted. Ultimately, uh, some were put to death for their faith in Christ. The, the Bible doesn't record the founding of this church in Smyrna. In fact, the city is never even mentioned in the book of Acts, where you see a lot of these churches, like Ephesus, for example, mentioned. But I think it's safe to assume that this church was planted here in this city during Paul's third missionary journey, uh, either by Paul himself or by some uh, of his converts, because that's kind of the same neck of the woods that he was traveling in. So that's the church. Now let's look at the commendation. Verse 9. Again, he says, I know. Jesus says, I know. We said this last week, right? Nothing escapes the attention of the Lord. He knows everything that is going on in these churches under his tender, watchful care. And in this case, his knowledge was gained by personal experience. He says, I know your tribulation. In other words, he endured the most unjust and severe tribulation or persecution anyone has ever experienced or ever will experience. And so in essence, I think he was saying to them, I know exactly what you're going through. I know your tribulation. I know what it feels like to be falsely accused. I know what it feels like to be unjustly treated. I know what it feels like to be beaten and mocked and killed. Listen, I've been there and done that. I know. And so Christ understood their fear and their pain, 
because he had also suffered death at the hands of his persecutors. And I think he wanted them to remember that he was a, a, a merciful and faithful high priest who could sympathize with their suffering, as the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4. But notice he says, I know your tribulation. Literally, that word tribulation means pressure. And so the idea here is of a a huge rock just kind of crushing whatever is underneath it. And these believers were being crushed underneath the weight of intense persecution. And they were feeling the pressure, I think, from four different, I guess, directions, if you will, or different levels of persecution kind of stacked on top of them. It wasn't just like one big rock. It was like four big rocks. They were feeling, number one, Government pressure. Uh, Smyrna had a special relationship with Rome. They were fanatically loyal to Rome, and its citizens were so infatuated with Rome that they became the first city to build a temple in honor of Rome. And so Rome uh, rewarded Smyrna's loyalty by choosing it as the site of a new temple dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. And so this city became the leading center for emperor worship, which that's what was going on in Rome, is whoever the emperor was, he was God. And you worshiped him. And once a year, every citizen was expected to burn incense to Caesar on the altar and proclaim him as Lord. In fact, under the emperor Domitian, it became a capital offense to refuse to offer that yearly sacrifice to the emperor. So many Christians obviously refused to worship the emperor, and they were immediately imprisoned and faced execution by the Roman government. So they were under government pressure. They were also under economic pressure. Notice it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. This is not the ordinary word, by the way, for for poverty. This is the word used to describe the poorest of the poor. I mean, they, they weren't able to find work to earn even the smallest wage. They had to hold out their hand and hope someone would give them something. Uh, they, they were beggars who had absolutely nothing. They, they didn't have a penny to their name. And remember, Smyrna was one of the most prosperous cities of its day. And, and everyone in Smyrna was prospering except for the Christians. Why? Because it was very difficult for a Christian to make a living in such an antagonistic environment. Most likely, they'd been fired from their jobs. Their businesses were looted. Their property had been seized or, or confiscated. They, they, had, they had other economic sanctions placed on them. Uh, but notice he says, in parentheses here, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Oh, by the way, but you're rich. And so Christ reminded them that in him they were rich, that as sons and daughters of God, they were heirs of the priceless promises of God. They were co-heirs with Christ. James 2.5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? I think this should inform us how we view our uh, economic status in the world. Some of you might be thinking, no, not, we're not really rich. We're, you know, in fact, our cars are kind of 
old and our house is kind of breaking down and we need to upgrade this or that. And so we're not, unlike these other people, they're ri- Well, when you look at things from a spiritual perspective, you're richer than, than uh, Jeff Bezos, right? Or Elon Musk, these guys, the richest men in the world, right? We, we have greater riches in Christ. So they were under political pressure. They were under economic pressure. They were um, also under religious pressure. Notice what it says here. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there was a large Jewish community there in Smyrna who apparently were extremely hostile to their fellow Jews who had embraced Christianity, who had come to know Christ, had committed their lives to follow Christ. And so they were speaking out against these Christians and spreading, spreading all sorts of slanderous lies, saying blasphemous things about them. And the Jews and the Romans also commonly accused Christians of a number of things. Number one, cannibalism. You say, what's up with that? Well, what, is it, what did Jesus mean when he said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood, right? They were practicing communion, and they're like, well, they're, they're, they're cannibals. That's disgusting. They, they were also accused of immorality because they would have these love feasts where they would uh, spend time together, and they would wash one another's feet, and they would give each other a holy kiss. And of course, if you pervert that, right? You can turn that into something gross and immoral. Um, They also accused Christians of breaking up homes because Christ called for the highest allegiance, which sometimes created conflict if one spouse got saved and the other one didn't. They also accused them of atheism, which is very ironic, because they worshiped an invisible God. They didn't have idols like everyone else had in those days. And of course, they accuse them of political rebellion in the sense that they refuse to worship Caesar. In fact, I was reading, I found this interesting that as long as the, well, the, the, the Romans had given the Jews an exemption, that they didn't have to worship Caesar, they just had to basically pray for his good health. So that was kind of a concession that the, the Romans made to the Jews, and, and as long as Christianity was viewed as a kind of a sect of the Jews, they were good. They kind of were covered under that exemption. But these Jews were like, no, they are not Jews. They are something different. And so they kind of kicked them to the curb and told the Romans, hey, these guys aren't Jews. Don't, don't, don't include them with us. And so they, guess what? As soon as they lost that, you know, they viewed them as separate, they lost that exemption. And so the hatred that these Jews had for Christ and his followers revealed that they were not really Jews after all. We learned this when we studied Romans, Romans chapter 2. Paul talked about Jews uh, that are Jews merely outwardly, right? Nationally, yeah, they're a Jew. They're not a Gentile. But they're not a Jew inwardly or spiritually. And this vicious attempt that these Jews were making to stamp out Christianity was proof that they were of their father, who? The devil, John 8, 44. And that was the fourth kind of pressure, the fourth rock, if you will, that was crushing down on them was satanic pressure. Notice he says, 
who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of who? Satan. That is not a, politi- a politically correct thing to say, by the way, about Jewish people, right? They're a synagogue of Satan. And I think the point was simply this. When those Jews gathered together to plan their attack on the church, they were doing Satan's work. They had placed themselves at the disposal, at at Satan's disposal to carry out his will in assaulting Christ's bride. And listen, you don't mess with Christ's bride. But we know Satan is the supreme adversary of the church. He does everything he can to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He's the one who is ultimately behind all the persecution that has ever happened in the church, including today. And these Jews were merely instruments in the hands of Satan to persecute the church in Smyrna. Chuck Swindoll said this, he said, Smyrna's zealous political loyalty, coupled with a large, highly anti-Christian Jewish population, made the city an extremely dangerous place for Christians to live. In fact, don't miss this, evidence suggests that life in Smyrna for a faithful Christian was more perilous than it was anywhere else in the Roman Empire. This was the hot spot of persecution. So let's move on to the condemnation, which I already mentioned. There is no condemnation here for Smyrna. They had found favor and approval in the eyes of Christ. They were a pleasing aroma to Christ. And I think this is a good reminder that that persecution purifies the church. The, the, The suffering and the persecution that they had experienced produced a pure, holy, blameless church that was pleasing in the sight of Christ. And so the more a church is persecuted, the greater its purity, the greater its strength. For those of you that have followed church history and seeing how the church has ebbed and flowed with with kind of world history, and if if you're old enough to remember when the Iron Curtain lifted in Russia... Um, and also in China, what did it reveal? That the church that had gone underground was forced underground. They had to go into hiding and meet in secret because the communists wanted to shut down the church. Well, as soon as that iron curtain was lifted, it revealed a powerful, pure church that was characterized by deep spirituality and doctrinal purity and humility and love and zeal. I mean, the churches in Russia typically blow us away because of what they've had to experience, what they've had to endure. And so there's no condemnation here, but there is a command or a correction. That's number six. After commending them, Jesus warned them that more persecution was on the way, and he commanded them to not be afraid. Notice verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Literally, stop being afraid. This was an exhortation to be courageous. Don't don't be intimidated by your persecutors. And so this was not a matter of if they would suffer, but when they would suffer and how much they would suffer. And he told them that Satan was about to cast 
some of them into prison. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. So again, Christ reminded these precious saints that their struggle was ultimately not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and all of his spiritual forces of wickedness, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And so he says, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, some Bible teachers speculate that 10 days was stylistic, it was symbolic, perhaps of 10 periods of Roman persecution, uh, or they represent a brief but unspecified period of time. I don't know why there's any reason why we wouldn't simply just understand this as 10 literal days in a Roman prison cell. It could be that. And, and I think towards that view, Roman prisons were not like American prisons that are designed to punish or babysit criminals. That's what our prisons are designed for, right? Roman prisons served as a temporary holding tank for those who were waiting to get killed. You didn't stay there very long. You were in and out. You were either executed or beaten up and thrown back on the street. But the, the real point, though, is notice he says that, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be what? Tested. It's kind of like when Jesus said to Peter, hey, by the way, Peter, Satan has asked if permission to sift you. But when you have been, after you've been tested, right, and you come forth, right, as gold, I'm going to use you in mighty ways. So, Getting thrown into prison was another opportunity for these people to demonstrate their loyalty to Christ. By, by enduring persecution, they would prove the reality of their faith in Christ. You remember First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. We learn this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's going to prove that you're truly saved, and uh, it's also going to prove how much you love Jesus. So it's essentially Jesus is saying, right, Christ's heart for his love, hey, you know how much I love you, and this is going to give you an opportunity to show me how much you love me, right? But then look at the consolation, the end of verse 10. He says, be faithful until death. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Christ closed this letter with some final words of encouragement in order to comfort them and reassure these suffering saints. And by the way, that's really the whole point of the entire book of Revelation. This letter isn't just to give us all the intricate details of, of what's going to happen and the seals and the, the bold judgments and all that kind of stuff. It's not about all the minutia 
of, of end times. It's, it's all about encouraging and comforting and reassuring the saints that this is how this deal is going to end. And guess what? We win. And yet Christ knew that some would pay the ultimate price for being a believer in Christ. And they would end up dying for him. And so he offered them a, a strong incentive or motivation to remain faithful, to stay faithful. He says, be faithful until death. Stand true to Christ no matter the cost. Those who, whose faith proves genuine by, by remaining faithful unto death until death will receive as their reward eternal life. That's what he meant by I will give you the crown of life. The Stephanos, which was a wreath worn by the winner of athletic games, and Smyrna was famous for its athletic events. And so this would communicate well with these, these believers that they were going to get this, this crown, but it wasn't going to be a wreath of, of you know, whatever uh, pine leaves, right? It was going to be uh, the crown of life, which, by the way, may also have been an allusion to the beautiful skyline of Smyrna that, Smyrna that I mentioned earlier, known as the crown of Smyrna, right? It was a beautiful uh, crown-like uh, geography, topography. James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved or passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Again, we love him because he first loved us. But notice verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, excuse me, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A good reminder that this is not just for this church. Uh, this letter was to all churches, including Lakeside Bible Church. And then notice he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So here we see the doctrine of of the perseverance of the saints, that all true Christians will remain faithful to Christ until death or until Christ returns. That's the idea of the overcomer, he who overcomes. An overcomer is a believer, a believer is an overcomer. But notice he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You say, what's that? Well, according to Revelation 20, verse 14 and Revelation 21, verse 8, the second death is a reference to hell, the lake of fire. And so what Jesus was saying is that they could look unflinchingly into the face of death because even if they got killed, they would be instantly ushered into the presence of Christ and they would never have to experience the awful judgment of the lake of fire. And so the book of Revelation talks about the first death and the second death. The first death is physical when we die. The second death is spiritual when we either go to heaven or hell. The former, the first death, is a separation of our soul from our bodies. The second death is a separation of our soul from God in hell. And you may have heard this expression that if you're born once, you'll die twice. You'll die physically, and you'll also die spiritually. But if you're born twice, you only die once. In other words, if you're born again, right, you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Christ, you're only going to die once, and that's your physical death. But you'll never, your soul will never be separated from Christ. 
About 60 years after John wrote this letter to the church in Smyrna, the pastor, the angel of the church in Smyrna, remember that, verse 8? I mentioned that that angel was not the guardian angel of the church, but most likely the pastor or elder who this letter was sent to, to, for him to read to the church and to lead them in understanding it and applying it to their lives. Well, 60 years after John wrote this letter, the pastor of the church applied the principles in this letter by shedding his own blood. You may have heard of the name Polycarp. Tradition says that as a young as a young man, Polycarp studied under the Apostle John. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he was considered the last living link to the original 12 apostles. And he was the bishop of the church of Smyrna. And he became the most famous martyr of the early church. Let me read for you the account of his martyrdom. Polycarp was arrested and dragged into the arena before the Roman proconsul. The proconsul tried to get Polycarp Polycarp, to deny Christ. He said, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering a sacrifice to save your life? Swear by the fortune of Caesar, take the oath and I will release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp's ardent answer has echoed down to the history of the church. This is what he said. Eighty and six years have I served him. He was 86. And he never did me any injury. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? That's a spry old man right there, right? 86-year-old. Bring it, right? The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts ready, and I will throw you to them if you do not change your mind. Let them come, replied Polycarp. You will not change my heart. I am a Christian even until death. wonder where he learned that. So he's quoting the words of Christ in this letter. If the wild beasts don't scare you, then I will burn you with fire, said the proconsul. Polycarp said, you threaten me with a fire which will burn for an hour and then will go out, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Well, he's preaching the gospel while... He's getting persecuted there. He says, but why do you delay? Bring on the beast or the fire or whatever you choose. You shall not move me to deny Christ, my Lord and my Savior. When the proconsul saw that Polycarp would not recant, he sent a herald to proclaim three times in the middle of the stadium, Polycarp has professed himself a Christian. As soon as the multitude heard these words, they furiously demanded that he be burned alive. They quickly gathered dry wood and heaped it in the center of the arena for a bonfire. When they were about to nail him to the stake, Polycarp said, hey, leave me as I am. He who gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me to remain within without moving in the fire. That's why they would nail the guy to the stake so he wouldn't try to run, run off. He says, you don't need to nail me. I'm going to trust that God will give me the grace to stand there and not move. Yeah, I love this guy. They agreed and simply tied his hands behind his back with a rope. 
He then turned his eyes towards heaven and uttered a final prayer. He prayed, O Lord, God Almighty, Father of the blessed and beloved Son, Jesus Christ, I thank you that you have called me to this day and hour and have counted me worthy to receive my place among the number of holy martyrs, to share in the cup of Christ and to the resurrection of eternal life. I praise thee for all things. I bless thee. I glorify thee along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thee and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and all the coming ages. Amen. It's a great dying prayer, would you say? When the fire was lit, miraculously, Polycarp was not burned. It's recorded that those who watched said that he was in the midst of the fire, not as burning flesh, but as gold and silver refined in a furnace. And we smelled such a sweet aroma as if incense or some other precious spice was burning there. They were expecting to smell the stench of burning flesh, and that's not at all what they smelled. It was like this perfume. Since the fire did not harm him, the executioner was ordered to stab him with a sword. As soon as he did... So much blood flowed from the wound that it put out the fire. (laughs) The point is this, Polycarp was faithful unto death. And in doing so, he personified the message to the church that he pastored. And I think the message to the church in Smyrna and the The message really to all of us is a call to be faithfully, fully devoted to Christ, even in the face of suffering, persecution, and death. Listen, not every one of us is going to be called to be a martyr. In fact, probably very few of us will experience that. But every one of us must be willing to sacrifice our lives for the sake of Christ. And our willingness to, to suffer for Christ and to die for Christ is the ultimate proof of our love and our loyalty to the one who so loyally loves us. And let me remind all of us, he does not, Christ does not expect us to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do because he himself was faithful unto death. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this faithful church that was persecuted intensely for the cause of Christ, but they never buckled, they never gave in, but they endured by your grace. And we know that you were ble- they, they were blessed because you say, Jesus himself said that blessed are we when people insult us and persecute us and falsely say all kinds of things evil against us be- because of Christ. We should rejoice. We should be glad for our reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, the same way they persecuted these saints in Smyrna, uh, Lord, we're in good company. And so thank you for this reminder. Lord, I pray that you'd use it to shake us Um, out of our complacency, out of our lethargy, our apathy, and um, Lord, that we would be on fire for Jesus um, and uh, not soon forget the example of Polycarp, but ultimately the example of Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.